One of the greatest leadership lessons I ever learned happened one day while I was raking leaves. It was the summer of 2002. I had signed up to be a camp counselor at what I think is the largest summer camp for kids in the entire country. There are multiple camps where 23,000 kids attend every summer. I'd never done anything quite like this before, but I signed up to be a camp counselor, and the president of this Christian camp, I found out, was a guy named Joe. And Joe was held in such high regard, high esteem. Everybody talked about how great Joe was, that he had himself played college football, which I thought was really neat. He had two doctorates. He had written over 20 books. He was surely a multimillionaire. Everybody talked about Joe, and I thought, man, that sounds great. I'm sure I won't meet him. But, you know, it's good to know the camp is in, is in such good hands. Well, the day before the campers arrived, the kids were about to come, and so the counselors, we were all tasked with cleaning up the campgrounds, preparing for the start of the week, and I was given my least favorite job in the world. I would never volunteer to rake leaves. I just hate it. And yet, for me, I, was, I ended up raking leaves behind a bunch of cabins all alone, and I'm sitting there wondering, am I, did I sign up? for the wrong thing. Am I really supposed to be here? I was feeling really sorry for myself. Raking leaves. And I hear this sound coming up behind me, this sound of like a a leaf raking tornado. Somebody has come to join me, which I was really excited about. I turn around and there's Dr. Joe in his 60s, the president of all these camps, raking leaves like his life depends on it, putting me to shame. And he sticks out a sweaty hand to introduce himself. And for the next half an hour, Dr. Joe and me, uh, all all by ourselves, unknown, unseen, we raked leaves together, and he asked all about me, never said a word about himself. I've read, I've heard a lot of leadership advice over the last 15 or so years since then. Never as good as that. And he didn't give me advice. He just simply modeled to me what it's all about. What I saw and experienced in Dr. Joe that day was a true leader because he was a true servant. Someone who wasn't willing to command of others something that he was unwilling to do himself. That he was willing to come and rake leaves with me. Nobody saw him. Nobody applauded it. There were a hundred other things he could have been doing in that moment. But he came and he served alongside me. And I came to find out that week what motivated that in his heart. Why would somebody do that? Certainly wasn't to impress a kid. He did it because his favorite story in the Bible was John 13. And I knew about John 13, but I hadn't really seen it lived out quite like that. See, John 13, if you're not familiar, there's this story about Jesus. He was about to go to his death. He was was about to be betrayed and crucified. And Jesus does something absolutely unthinkable that night in preparation for his crucifixion. He wraps a towel around his waist. He grabs a basin full of water and he washes his disciples' filthy feet. Something only the lowest of the low uh, servants would do. Jesus does that for his disciples. The creator of the universe, the savior of the world, makes himself a servant for his disciples' sake, for our sake. And see, it was Jesus, not Dr. Joe, it was Jesus who set the baseline for what true leadership looks like. That's where he got it from, from watching and learning from Christ. It's Jesus who sets the standard that defines not just how we are meant to live individually and think individually, but how we're meant to function as a group. See, good leadership applies in pretty much every arena of life, sports and business and school and everything, right? But this kind of leadership, 
that Jesus models, that Joe modeled for me, this kind of leadership that Peter talks about today, is something that's especially pertinent for the church. Because of all the organizations and communities that make up the entire world, the church is the one that is meant to give the best reflection and representation of the heart of God. We're unworthy to serve in that function. I know it's true because I'm unworthy too. But Jesus looks upon us, his people, his disciples, and he says, I want you to show the world what I'm like. And so when it comes to leadership, the most important thing we can do is turn to God's word and see what it's all about. So we're rounding the corner here, turning the last corner in 1 Peter. We've been spending now a couple of months walking through this this incredible book, 1 Peter. We're now in the last chapter, and it's interesting here, Peter has spoken on many topics, many issues, suffering chief among them. We talked about suffering last week. But before he closes his letter, he issues a word to leaders. He speaks to this issue of leadership in the church. And he addresses not just the leaders, but also the church's role in responding to good leadership. And so what we're going to see today is a very precious scripture. It may on the surface not seem to apply to you, but hold tight with me here because it really does. This is what makes a church a healthy place. This is what makes us what Jesus called a city on a hill, a distinctive people who actually make a difference in the world. Here's how it's done. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 5. This is what we at Harvest Church aspire to be. Look at verse 1. Therefore, Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Now, before we get into the command itself, I want to, let's define terms right here. Peter says, as a fellow elder, I charge, I exhort the elders of this particular church. What is an elder? When I was a kid in church, I just assumed that the elders were just the older folks. The folks that had gray hair, they were the elders. Respect your elders, right? Maybe that's what you assumed as well. But there's, a, there's an interesting designation that the Scripture gives to us, that the New Testament gives us, about what an elder is, that it's actually a unique office, a unique position for those who lead the local church. It's not just someone who's older, but it's someone who leads by God's appointment. Uh, at the formation of the early church, if you read through the book of Acts, In the book of Acts, especially early on, you've got the apostles. These are the men, Peter, James, John, Thomas, the apostles, who were given direct orders from Jesus Christ, sent out by Jesus to go and preach the gospel, the good news of his salvation. And early on in the book of Acts, it's it's really, it's it's mainly all about the apostles, as it should be. They They were the big dogs. But as the gospel begins to spread, spread beyond Jerusalem, into neighboring countries and and across Asia and the Middle East, as the gospel spreads, the apostles can't be in all of those places, and they're not called to be. They stayed in Jerusalem primarily while the gospel spread outward, and God told the leaders to appoint uh, under-shepherds, elders, in each individual church. In the places where Christians were now gathering as churches, the apostles set them up, but now elders were given to lead them. And so the Bible calls them elders, and that is really synonymous. That's the same term when you see overseer or pastor in the Bible. It's really all the same thing. To be an elder is to be a pastor, an overseer. Uh, Elders were basically given three charges, three things an elder was supposed to do, primarily. One, they had to meet the qualifications of godliness. They had to be a certain kind of person. If you go to 1 Timothy 3, if you go to Titus chapter 1, we're actually given lists that a man who leads in the church has to have a certain lifestyle, a certain godliness 
that his life cannot be denied, that he cannot be the kind of person who holds a bad reputation either inside or outside the church. He's got to be a certain kind of man. And then secondly, the elders are called to be the teachers primarily of the church, not just on a Sunday, not just preaching, but the elders are overseeing the teaching of the church to make sure that the, that the truth is taught, that God's word is taught, because there was a lot of error floating around in the early church that needed to be combated. That was the elder's job. Keep them straight with the truth. But then thirdly, what Peter has in mind here in chapter 5 is that the elders are called to oversee the church uh, in a relational way, that they were meant to relate to the people of God in a certain way. So we'll talk in the coming months, we'll talk more about the godliness aspect of elders, the preaching aspect, the teaching. But for right now, Peter's going to talk to us about what the relationship is meant to be, okay? So what, we're, what I'm going to spend the next few minutes on is the standard that I'm held to, just so y'all know. Uh, and it's something that the, the, the Bible is very intent to mention over and over. We see it from Paul, we see it in Hebrews, we see it in Jesus, that this is no small issue here when we talk about pastors and elders. But then we're going to come around at the end to talk about what it means for all of us, okay? Not just for a person who, uh, who leads, okay? So I want to give you guys context real quickly. Sometimes I take this for granted, but I didn't, I didn't always know this. Y'all know that we don't have a pope. We are not, well, we are what's called Protestant. And Protestant means uh, it, we're, we're different than Catholic. We don't have somebody who sits on high and dictates doctrine and practice down to us. We don't have someone in, in a position like that. We don't have priests. We don't have people who exist to mediate our relationship to God. You don't have to come to me to confess your sins to me so that I can go to God for you. We don't believe that. We have Jesus. Jesus who sits on the throne. Jesus who is our Lord and Savior. And Jesus who is, the Bible says, he's our priest, which means Jesus is the one who mediates our relationship with God. He has forgiven our sins. You go straight to him. You don't have to come through me or through any other person. You go straight to Jesus Christ. Isn't that a blessing? But we do have, by way of command in the scriptures, we do have local church leadership that in this case, the Bible calls them elders or pastors that are given special leadership in the church. And here's what that means. Peter's going to tell us beginning in verse two. Here are his commands. He gives four commands to guys like me or to anybody who might serve in a leadership role in the church. He says, shepherd the flock of God among you, uh, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. What does Jesus expect of, of any person who leads God's church? Peter says, first, you shepherd the flock of God among you. Uh, Jesus, in the book of John, Jesus called himself the good shepherd. That was one of the names he gave himself. The good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. What that means, any person who leads in the church the Bible calls a shepherd, but the truth is we're also sheep. We have a good shepherd. We have one who has brought us into his fold. We have one who has saved us from our sins. And in that sense, to be a leader in the church is not a special designation that, that somehow that guy is better than everybody else. He's the bullseye and everybody else needs to just try to keep up. No, he's a sheep just as he's a shepherd. He is one who has been forgiven of sin just like everybody else. And he is now called to shepherd the church of God with a humility that underscores that. That there's no, there's, uh, 
You think about what a shepherd, you know, it's, tip, it's not typical for our culture. We don't really run into shepherds very often. Okay? But see, shepherds had the role of not just leading, but for nurturing, not just providing for, but for protecting. Their flock was precious to them, and they were the sole contributors to the health and the vibrancy and the flourishing of that flock. It was an incredible trust given to that person, that shepherd. The sheep depended on him for everything. And so when we talk about church leadership, Peter says very first thing. Now, I'm going to import my own language here, but he says, guys, you're not CEOs here. You're not figureheads. You don't sit aloof and separate and bark out commands for everybody else to follow your words. Peter says, no, you're a guy that has to smell like sheep. That's what a shepherd is. You shepherd the flock of God among you because you're a sheep too, that we have relationship with each other. It's not a figurehead, top-down form of leadership. You love and you care for the people of God. That's the very first thing Peter says. And then secondly, he says, you exercise, over, uh, you exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. Uh, one of my very favorite Disney movies from way back is called Sword in the Stone. I don't know if you ever saw Sword in the Stone. I love that movie. My kids love that movie because I make them watch it. Uh, and I, really, I still enjoy it. In the, in the movie at the end, Arthur, skinny, scrawny little Arthur, he pulls the sword out of the anvil. It's a, it's a miracle. It's a divine thing, this power he's been given. And the people are astonished that this young little scrawny kid could have done it, but they know what it means, that that means he's now the king. He's the king of England. And so they anoint him as king, and they put him on the throne with this, this crown that's much too big for his head, and he has no desire at all to serve in that role. He does not want to be the king. He just wants to go back to, uh, to, to his old life. He wants to just go have fun. And every time he tries to run out the door and escape, they scream him, Hail King Arthur! And they scream him back onto the throne, and he's stuck. Peter says that's not what it is to lead the church. That a person who is unwilling, they don't really want to do it, but they get kind of squeezed into it, nobody else is willing to do it, or whatever it may be, and they just kind of end up sitting in that chair uh, uh, because they have to. No, Peter says you do it willingly. You don't do it under compulsion, that there is a full-hearted desire that I want to love God and I want to love God's people, and if he should call me to this role, then I'm absolutely going to take it, right? Because it's, what, it's what's going to honor God. Am I fully adequate for it? No. But if, if, it's, if it's my appointment, then, it, then it's going it's, it's to stir in me a desire to do it. That's what Peter says. Then thirdly, he says an elder cannot lead for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Now, that simply means that he would do it for free. It is absolutely good and right and biblical for a pastor and elder to make his living from the gospel, for the church to support him. But that cannot be motivation. That cannot be his desire that somehow he's going to skim off the top and make a living doing something that he wouldn't otherwise do. So it has to be such a desire, such an eagerness in him that he would do it no matter what his vocation was because he loves God and he wants to honor God. Um, it, it was not uncommon in the New Testament. If you read through the New Testament, there were false teachers who were, the Apostle Paul said, they were peddling the word of God. They were insincere. They did not desire to honor God and love people. They were simply trying to make money. Uh, that was true back then, and sadly, that's still true. Those guys are still out there. Um, that's why the Apostle Paul, in one of the lists he gives of elder qualifications, he says you have to be free from the love of money. 
Because if you love money, you're not going to love God's people and you're not going to love God the way you should. It's got to be out of your life. And so there, there has to be an eagerness that's driven by sincerity. We're not here to get rich. And then in verse 3, the, the fourth thing Peter says to us, you see it? An elder must not lord it over those under his charge, but prove to be an example to the flock. You know, I don't have to tell you this. There are a few things worse than a person who abuses their authority, than a person who has a position and uses that position to just pile drive people in his path. Um, no child deserves to live in a home under a domineering, abusive parent. No employee wants to work for a heartless, iron-fisted boss. Nobody. And multiple times in the Gospels, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the disciples, Jesus' disciples, would get into arguments. You know what their most common argument was? Which one of us is the greatest? Multiple times they had this discussion. Who among us is the greatest, the smartest, the most powerful? Who's going to sit next to Jesus in glory? That's what they always wanted to know. And every time they had that conversation, Jesus would nip it in the bud. And, and in one such occasion, this comes from Matthew chapter 20, Jesus brought his disciples to himself in the midst of their arguing over which one would be elevated the most, which one deserves the most praise. And he said to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. In other words, Jesus says, the way the rest of the world functions is the one who has the most power exerts that power at the expense of others. The person who has the office, has the authority, uses that authority to get their way at whatever expense. It doesn't matter who gets hurt and trampled in the process. But Jesus says, it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And Jesus said it so clearly, that if you're going to lead, you've got to lead my way. You've got to do it my way, which means, leaders, you give your life away for the sake of others. You give yourself away so that others may thrive and be blessed and be edified in the process. You don't run over anybody to get where you're going because where you're going is not in the direction of God. This is not the heart of God. We're not here to get stuff done, no matter who gets hurt in the process. We're here to build people up. And so Peter got these words from Jesus. When Peter says, you don't lord it over those under your charge, that came directly from Christ. Peter was there when Jesus admonished them for their desire for glory. He says, you don't lord your position over others, but you live as an example of Jesus Christ to those in the church. All right. Can I be honest with y'all? I'm always honest. I don't know why I prefaced it that way. I'm not, I'm not typically lying to you. But when we, when we planted Harvest Church, I knew that there was a lot to it. I mean, I assumed there was a lot to it, that, that there's just a lot of stuff to do and you've got to set a budget, and you've got to recruit volunteers, and you've got to figure out how to do children's ministry, and all, you know, all these things. There's a lot of stuff going on. I, I knew that. I figured that. Um, but y'all, that stuff is cake compared to what Peter's saying right here. That, that this scripture we're looking at right now, this is the most consistently intimidating thing that I face when I wake up in the morning. That God has called me to serve a role that I feel inadequate to serve. To love people, to lead people like this, to be free from 
competing internal motives and to do it with a pure heart. Y'all, I, I mean, I almost, almost daily, I just confess to God, I, I can't do this. What qualifies me to do this? Uh, and I, I, think that's, I think we're meant to feel that way. And the reason I think that is because the Apostle Paul felt that way. There's a, there's a verse that's always been very precious to me, but especially in the last year or so, it's really risen to the surface of my heart. Paul said to the Corinthians, he's, he's talking about himself and his fellow apostles, he said, we are not adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. But our adequacy is from God, who has made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. That was true for the Apostle Paul. It's for sure true of me. That I look at my own heart, I look at my own competency and everything else, and I think, man, how can I do this? And the answer is only by the grace of God, that it's him who makes me adequate for this. And any leader who stands in the position of elder at Harvest Church, that has to be our baseline understanding. I'm not here because I earned my way up. I'm not here because everybody forced me into it. Nobody else wanted to. I'm only here because God allows me by his grace to do something that otherwise I have no business doing. I'm here as a product of his grace, just like we all are. Um, and so I, I, I stand here for the same reason you sit here. None of us earned our way in here. We simply receive it by God's grace, and then we strive to honor him in how we live. All right? That's what it is to be a leader in the church. Now, i just say this very practically before we move on. Um, as, of, as of today, where we sit and stand today, I'm the only elder pastor at Harvest Church. That is not by design, and that is not our long-term intention. We have, uh, right now, we're in process of praying through and considering additional elders um, because the Bible says so. The Bible gives us a, what's called a plurality of eldership. That it's, it's, not only is it wrong for one person to hold that role because the burden is truly very heavy, but it's also wrong for one person to hold that much power and, and um, position. And so there is a plurality that we're called into, and I want you all to know that that's on our horizon. But any person that, that stands in this place of, of the biblical elder, I just want you to know my heart and our heart as a church, we're not looking for good businessmen. We're not looking for dynamic personalities. We're not looking for things that perhaps the world might esteem as leadership. We're looking for what Peter has just told us. Men who love God, men who not, not, don't just meet the qualifications of morality, but people who love God and his church and serve it well. All right? um, and there's an amazing promise that comes with that. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you, leaders, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Uh, anyone called to lead the church, I mentioned this a minute ago, we are under shepherds. Now you can, you, we don't let that leadership go to our head as if we've earned anything. We're under shepherds. There is the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, that's Jesus. The one who ultimately we answer to, the one who ultimately we come to as our salvation, as our Lord and our, and our master. And, and anybody who tries to lead the church in an effort to elevate himself is trying to take the role, the place of the chief shepherd. Only Jesus can do that. And so we serve under him for the sake of his church. You know, in the, in the Roman world, G, uh, Peter was writing to the Roman world. You've probably seen this in paintings and statues. That in the Roman world, they would, uh, they would have athletes competing in games. They would win a prize and they would put a wreath around their head. Have you ever seen this in a statue? Caesar wearing the wreath. And it was made of what, do you know? 
leaves, right? It was made of foliage. It wasn't a permanent thing. I've heard that they actually would weave uh, celery. They'd pull the strings of celery to weave the foliage there and make a little plant wreath, okay? Well, how long would something like that last? That's like a two or three day thing that you can wear that on your head before it begins to wilt and brown and decay because that's what plants do. You notice what Peter's saying here? To the faithful man who leads God's church, who does it well with pure motives and a love for God's people, he says, you receive the unfading crown of glory, not something destined to perish with time because what we're doing here is not just temporary. It's not just for our own personal edification so we can get through the week. What we're doing here right now is is of eternal significance. And we don't try to elevate ourselves to a certain position because it's ultimately Jesus Christ who gives the crown, who grants glory to those who love him. And it's an unwilting, unfading glory. And so that's how we know that our goal is, is right as leaders. We're not looking for approval and applause or any lesser ambition. We're looking at Christ and what only he can give. All right. That's my job. I don't know. You, you can fill out a card as to how you think I'm doing on that, okay? Um, this is a high calling that's, um, that the Scripture wants us to know about. Peter didn't write a special letter that only the elders could read. He wrote this for everybody to read. Y'all need to know this is, this is the way it's meant to be. All right, well, what about all of us, okay? What about the church at large? Look at verse 5. Peter only gives us one verse for everybody else, but it's power-packed. He says, you younger men likewise... Be subject to your elders. I, I, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure why Peter um, hones in on younger men here. It's interesting in the Greek that he actually wrote this letter. The word men is not in there. Uh, it's just added in because it's linguistically confusing. He just says, you younger. And so he could be talking specifically to people of a certain age in the church. He could simply mean the whole church. It's not really clear as to what he means here. But he says very clearly what the command is. He says, be subject to your elders. Now, we don't throw a blanket over that to assume that Peter means even if your elders are, are leading in an ungodly way and deviating from God's truth, that you've got to submit to them anyway. Right? That's, that's clearly not the case here. But assuming that elders are leading correctly, that they are leading in a sincere and humble and godly way, Peter says, you younger folks, younger people who maybe are more prone to bow up our chests and not want to be led. He says, you don't cause grief to these people that God has called to lead you. In Hebrews 13, it says that very specifically, that we're meant to be subject to our leaders because they give watch over our souls and they will give an account to God for that. So Hebrews says, let them do it with joy and not with grief. So none of us can bow our chest up and say, nobody's leading me. Peter says, that, listen, if they're leading rightly, if they're leading well, you submit to them because that's, this is for your good. But here's the bottom line for the whole church. This is my, maybe my favorite part of the whole scripture. Look at the, the second half of verse 5. A precious command here. He says, all of you, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Uh, Peter has already told the elders to lead with sincere humility, right? That we're accountable to God, we're accountable to to the church for that. But now he says to all of us, all of us, live with humility, clothe yourselves with humility. I mentioned the fact that this is the ancient Roman world. In ancient Rome and Greece, they had no formal word for humility. Really interesting here. They had no word for it. 
because it was such a detestable idea to them. It was something that no one would ever desire to be. If you were humble, as they saw it, it meant that you were poor and you were effectively worthless. That's what it meant to be humble. And so they did not use that word in public discourse. And yet when you read through the Bible, both Old and New Testament, humility is one of God's prized virtues. It's one of the things God desires most of us and for us and from us is to be humble. Now, why is that? What's the difference? Why is it something that the culture at large would reject as shameful and yet God would call a virtue? Well, here's why. Here's why humility is so important. Christians are humble because everything we are has been given to us in spite of us. Christians are humble because everything we are has been given to us in spite of us. Here's the truth, and it's not a truth that we enjoy hearing, I know, but we were lost sinners. We were hopelessly separated from God. We were living in darkness. The Scripture is so clear on that. But Jesus Christ, because of His great love for us, because of God's kindness expressed through sending His Son, Jesus Christ came, and by His grace, He rescued us from our sin and darkness and he made us fully alive to God. And we have all of that great blessing, both now and for all eternity, we have it simply by faith and trust in him. Now, if all of that is true, what we were, yes, but also what's been done for us, then Christians ought to be the most humble people in the world. We ought to be the most humble people in the entire world because we understand reality. This is who I was, but this is how much God has loved me. And so when Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility, that image is so clear that just like we put clothing on our bodies, that our clothing is something outward and obvious that can't be missed, that so too would be our humility, that we would be the kind of people that it's unmistakable who we are and what we're about, what we believe about ourselves and how we function as a people. Just like our clothing is so obvious to the naked eye, humility ought to be that way too. It shouldn't be something stuffed down and suppressed or considered to be a shameful thing, but it's something we hold in the highest esteem. It's an unmistakable quality of the church, Peter says. Clothe yourselves in it. And you know, it's interesting, this, that, that term, clothe yourselves, Peter wrote it in the original Greek that he wrote. Uh, I think it's the only time it's used in the entire Bible. It's actually a term that was given to servants for putting on their aprons. When you tied your apron on, you were clothing yourself, in Peter's terminology here. In fact, one of the translations of this verse actually says it that way. It says, all of you put on the apron of humility toward one another. Put on the apron. Isn't that interesting? Uh, y'all are probably kind of like me in this way. I, I, I don't know anybody who doesn't think of themselves as a humble person. I mean, we all think of ourselves as humble. Nobody's I mean, we're not, we're not out boasting constantly, you know, and proud of it. I think I'm humble. You probably do too. But a lot of times I consider humility kind of like a privately held belief. It's just the way I feel about myself. It's something within me, and I feel it internally. But you see what Peter's saying here? And here's the, here's the great challenge for us as we close. That biblical humility is not a feeling. It's not primarily internal. It starts as a, as a frame of mind. It starts as a, as a disposition of the heart, yes. But it's not primarily internal. It's something that acts like clothing to us. It's like an apron that we tie around ourselves. And it transforms how we treat each other because humility works itself out in how we live. That's why we clothe ourselves in humility toward one another. It's not just something I believe about myself. It's got to influence the way I treat y'all. 
and the way you treat each other. And so Peter says to leaders, he says, you are not called to be a CEO. You're not called to abuse your position of authority because God opposes that kind of pride. That when God calls a man to lead God's church, he hands him an apron. He says, you serve, you love, you get your hands and feet dirty, and you wash feet, right? And in the same way, the church, we, all of us, we're not called to be consumers. We're not called to come and simply get something out of the service. That we're called to be a family of servants. We're called to all of us be apron wearers. Um, I said this a minute ago, it's, it's, it's God's grace that creates this. It's only when I understand the gospel that I become this way, because otherwise, why would I want to be this way? Why would I want to submit myself to you for your good if I, can, if I don't get anything out of it? Only grace produces this kind of humility. But you know what Peter says also? He says this grace is also the reward for humility. It creates it, and it also is our reward. It's our goal. It's our payment, as it were. Peter quotes from the Proverbs. He says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. Can I ask you this? Do you want God to work powerfully in your life? Do you want God to be honored in the way you live? Do you want at the end of your life to show something for yourself that would honor and please the one who created you? Do you want to see the church be all that the church can be? Like Jesus said, that we would be a city on a hill, a place that serves as a bright light in dark places within our communities and within our world. I'm guessing you probably want those things. Well, Peter says, here it is. This is the oil that keeps the engine healthy and makes it go. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Put aside everything else that that reeks of selfish ambition, that reeks of envy, that reeks of of self-pity, whatever it is that forces me inward, Peter says, you treat others in such a way that it's like the clothes on your back. You are humble and you love well. Um, I don't have any other explanation for what would make Dr. Joe White rake leaves with me for a half an hour. with nobody around to applaud it, with no benefit to him, somebody he didn't know, when there was a hundred other things he could have been doing that would have been considered far more important than that, and yet he had encountered a grace that humbled his heart. He wasn't too good for me or anybody. Um, And he got it from Jesus. I want to circle back around as we close. This is is John 13. I'd, I'd encourage you to read John 13 in a fresh way. That Jesus Christ, before he's betrayed by one of his own disciples, before he goes to the cross, basically the last thing he did for them in terms of how he tangibly loved and served them is he put his apron on. And quite literally, Jesus took off his outer garments and tied a, a towel around his waist, John says, so that he might use that towel to dry the feet of the disciples as he washed them. That the Savior of the world the creator of everything we have and see, the one who made you and me, would get down on his knees and do the most menial task. And you know, Jesus realized how strange this would have seemed to them because he said something about it. He he mentions the elephant in the room there in John 13. He says, you call me Lord and you're right. I am your Lord, your teacher, your master. And so if your Lord and your teacher washes your feet you go and do the same for others. 
If it wasn't too good for Jesus himself, why would it be too good for me? He says, you go and do likewise for one another. You wrap the towel around your waist. You put the apron on. You clothe yourself with humility. Stop arguing over, over which one of you is the greatest and most to be praised. Because the greatest among you will be servant of all. Now let me just ask us how we're doing. I've got to come to terms every single day. How am I doing here? Because I'm, I'm not, I don't stand here right now to be elevated. And if I do, then God, God will, he will do the work of squashing me down to change my heart. That if God should call me to, to serve the church as a leader, then that calling is not a high calling in terms of platform. It's a high calling in terms of Christ-likeness. And to be Christ-like is to wash feet. How are you doing on this? And I want to encourage us on this because I, I know, I know in, I, I, I grew up in the South in the Bible Belt, just like most of us did, and I know how, how easy it is to become uh, church shoppers and church raiders. Y'all are going to go, y'all are going to get in the car after the service and say, how'd you like the sermon? And you're going to rank it, okay? Because that's what I do. I, actually, I don't, I, you know, because... Um, it's kind of depressing. I, I always give myself like a two, okay? Like, I'm just trying to leg out a bunt single, okay? I'm, just not, I'm, not, I'm not going to hit a home run, I know it. But we, we just do that because that's our, that's our nature. That's my heart. My heart is, how was it? How good was it? <laughs> and Peter says, man, when, when it comes to being the family of God, the household of God, he says, you put the apron on. Because it's not about what we get out of it. Certainly, I pray that we get lots of out of it. But it's about what we put into it. It's about loving God enough to serve God's people so that we truly might be a city on a hill, an unmistakable community of people that it just makes no sense how we live and how we act toward one another. Only that a, that a grace has been given to us that would humble our hearts to make us more like Christ. I don't know about you, I need to pray for more of this in my own heart. So let's pray now. Father, uh, I, we ask, Lord, that you would edify us this morning, that you would build us up through this word, that we wouldn't be beaten down. Uh, you know, n- none of us measures up. We know that. That's why we're here. Um, we're not here to show off what we are, what we've accomplished. We're here because, Lord, we, we, we depend on your grace right now as much or more than we ever have. And so, Father, I pray that we would be encouraged today to know that, Lord, you call us not to um, platforms, that you call us, Lord, not to great temporary ambitions, but that you call us, Lord, to be like Jesus who came to serve. And, Lord, I pray for encouragement in that, that 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 requires no talent from us, that that requires um, no—we don't have to bring anything to the table— We can simply come to you, Lord, with open hands and receive an apron. And Lord, we can can make uh, the lives of others uh, infinitely better by placing them above ourselves. Um, Father, that that may not be our heart's ambition, but I pray, Lord, that you would would direct us as a church that way. Um, That we would look at the example of Christ and that we would see what he did that he washed feet and said, go and do likewise. And that, Father, also we would look at the purpose of Christ, that he came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
And that means that we are here right now because of grace, because of sacrifice, something that was done for us, blood that was shed on our behalf so that we might be forgiven and set free. So Lord, you, you esteem us this morning. You call us your children. You call us something, Lord, that we haven't earned. And yet, Father, you hand us an apron and you call us to delight in humility. And so, Father, where my heart, where our hearts rub against that, where that's abrasive to us and we've, we really don't like it, would you encourage us today that this is the path to, to Jesus? This is what it means to follow him. And Lord, there is joy untold through this path. Um, there is no shame in simply walking in the footsteps of our Savior. There is only glory. And so, Father, make it so for us that where we recognize needs, that we are quick to meet them, that where we recognize opportunities to love and serve well, that, Father, that we would take it upon ourselves with great joy, because here we are, your children, meant to be a city on a hill. So clothe us today, Lord, in the virtue of a humble heart and give us joy, Lord, as we do it together. We ask in Christ's name.